Welcome to Bespoke Investment Group's Bespoke Cast. I'm George Perks, macro strategist for Bespoke Investment Group. Bespoke Cast features conversations with markets professionals and economists whose views we find interesting or insightful into the world of finance and economics. If you like what you hear today, you can learn more about our firm by visiting our website, bespokepremium.com. Bespoke offers financial market research and insight to investors of all types, ranging from individuals to large institutions. You can follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. If you enjoy BespokeCast, we would also appreciate you reviewing the podcast in the iTunes store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. This week on BespokeCast, we are thrilled to be joined by Rob Bartenstein, CEO of Kestra Private Wealth and an expert in this investment advisory space. Most of our conversation focuses on the business of investment advisory, which is an area of the financial industry that I have less expertise in. Rob did a great job getting me caught up, and we think this conversation will be a fantastic resource and perspective for anyone in the financial industry. We hope you enjoy it. This week on BespokeCast, we are lucky enough to have one of the leaders in the, uh, I don't think it's fair to call it fledgling any anymore. I think uh, fast growing is probably a better way to describe it, uh, RIA industry. Uh, Rob Bartenstein is the CEO of Kestra Private Wealth. I think he's going to offer some really interesting perspectives on money management, uh, how people save for retirement, how people invest their wealth, and uh, the business of finance in a way that I think we haven't really had a chance to talk about yet with some of our guests. So, so we're really excited about this conversation. Um, Rob's joining us from out in California. Welcome to the podcast, Rob. Thanks for talking to us. Thanks, George. Great to be here. Great to be with you this morning. So just a little bit of background for our listeners before we we dive into more detail. Um, you are the CEO of Kestra. What is Kestra? That's a great question. Kestra is a couple of things. Um, Kestra Financial is a very large advisor platform uh, that serves independent advisors. And it does so in a couple of different channels, primarily a traditional corporate RIA channel, which probably many of your listeners are familiar with, and then our channel, which is um, a wirehouse-focused independent channel for experienced, um, successful wirehouse advisors that are looking to go independent but maintain much of the infrastructure and support that they had as wirehouse um, advisors. So that's what we do. Just to back out a, a step here, I think something that's worth sort of talking about is the definition of wirehouse, the definition of RIA, uh, what we're talking about when we're when we're saying an advisor, because I think these are sort of terms that a lot of people in the industry take for granted, and folks that that uh, maybe you know in the financial industry themselves in another role or uh, lay people outside who are just sort of looking at their options may sort of get confused on. So I know this is really basic, but what is an advisor? What is an RIA? And what is a wirehouse? Great. The, the advisor is the agent that works within a broker dealer or a registered investment advisor or a combination of the two uh, at firms that your listeners would be familiar with, places like Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, UBS, Wells Fargo. That's the advisor that we focus on. Uh, those folks work with individuals, they work with families, they work with corporations, um, nonprofits, endowments, et cetera, um, to manage assets. And they do that across the entire asset spectrum, um, everything from cash to you know, sophisticated alternatives. The registered investment advisor is, at least from my perspective, is a relatively new development um, as I spent most of my career um, on the other side of the business. And these are 
standalone entities that have either one advisor and staff or multiple advisors and staff that work. Um, and if we're if we're being um, you know strict in our definition, registered investment advisors work strictly on the advisory side of the business, meaning they're regulated by the SEC and not by FINRA. Um, and they work on a fee basis to give advice to investors. So an RIA will not be charging you a brokerage commission that we're all sort of familiar with. Um, you know, if you're if you're in your E-Trade account, for instance, uh, you and you're you're moving stocks around, you're going to be charged a brokerage commission. Um, in the past, if you had uh, you know your sort of broker uh, somewhere on the on the um, so somewhere helping you run your money, you would call them up, place a stock trade, and you would be charged a commission. An RIA does not work that way, correct? In the main, that is correct. But like any regulatory construct, there are always permutations. So here's the permutation to what you just said. There is an entity known as a hybrid RIA, which is precisely what Kestra Private Wealth Services, that's our organization, that's precisely what we are. And there are multiple hybrid RIAs around the country. Now, what that means is the advisors in, in our RIA entity also maintain FINRA licenses for broker-dealer business. So we are regulated by FINRA and the SEC, and our advisors can execute trades on a commission basis where required and also do advisory business, um, which is the majority of our business. Then what is the differentiation? What what makes uh, if if uh, Kestra Private Wealth Services is an in you know a broker dealer regulated by Finra? What distinguishes Kestra from a wirehouse, um, you know, traditional wirehouse like a Morgan Stanley, a Merrill Lynch, uh, that kind of place? I'm going to try and answer that question from a couple of different angles. So, Kestra Private Wealth Services is just an RIA. So we are an RIA that plugs into a broker dealer that is owned by Kestra Financial, the kind of the mothership, if you will. Um, the the old definition or the old answer to the question that you just asked was what's the the question being what's the difference between a broker dealer relationship and a um, advisory relationship? And in the old days, the way we used to sort of explain it was one was a commission basis and one was a fee basis. Um, but that definition has gotten more um, precise and more importantly, focused on the uh, fiduciary standard in recent years. So the way I think we would answer that question today is to say that the difference between a broker-dealer relationship, i.e. commission, and an RIA relationship, i.e. advisory, is the standard of care owed by the financial advisor operating in both of those channels. And what that means is, um, on, on the broker-dealer side, the advisor um, does not have the same regulatory level of standard of care as the advisor does on the advisory side of the business. So on the advisory side of the business, um, the advisor has to do what's in the client's best interest as a fiduciary. That's not the case on the broker-dealer side. Now, that has led to many knockdown, drag-out debates, um, obviously, about um, the ethical standards, et cetera, that exist on both sides of, of our business. Um, 
But does it mean that people that do commission business are, you know, are not operating in the client's best interest or more specifically are operating counter to the client's best interest? No, of course it doesn't. Um, and I think growing up in the business, most of us, um, prior to sort of the dawn of the RIA, most of us believed that we were always operating in the client's best interest and that if we didn't, the relationship with the client would naturally deteriorate um, because, you know, if the client's not achieving his or her goals, then um, the, the value of the relationship goes down and they'll seek advice elsewhere. That's gotten to be a more legal um, definition of the relationship in recent years. So we do make clear, um, and we should, that those, those roles are different uh, depending on which side of the business the client is um, interacting with the advisor on. And that's, you know, honestly, as I talk through it and listen to myself, um, you know, jabber on about this, it's, it's a reminder of how complicated that can be. Um, certainly from the client's perspective, but also in terms of administering the business um, and staying compliant and making sure that all the requisite disclosures are in place and, uh, you know, everyone understands what's going on. It's difficult to administer a business in that environment as well when um, that has become such a hot button issue. To sketch it out in a, in a sort of a couple sentence framework, um, RIA is someone that's probably going to be charging you um, through fees and assets under management, and they have a fiduciary standard um, in terms of what they're recommending that you do with your money. Uh, a, a wirehouse role, a broker-dealer role is going to be charging you probably more likely, but not necessarily, uh, through commissions, um, and they have a different, um, you know, lower standard of care on a legal basis, not to say that uh, that folks who are charging commissions and have a broker-dealer relationship are not um, exercising a high standard of care, but just that they are legally and regulator on a regulatory basis obligated to a slightly lower standard of care than what is obligated of an RIA. Is that is that a fair sort of sketch just to summarize what, what you've just discussed? That's a, yeah, that's a very accurate sketch. Absolutely. I think one of the things that gets talked about a lot in investing these days is this switch from active to passive. And I think we'd, it'd be great to talk about that with you in a little bit. But I think the other side of things is this really interesting switch from um, the broker dealer to the RIA, because that is, you know, for the people that work in the industry of advising people on what to do with their wealth, that's almost a bigger switch in a lot of ways. Um, and for some of the reasons you just discussed, do you think that switch is entirely a function of sort of new regulatory exploration that's going on, sort of new rules that have been made? Or do you think it's it's a more complex story than that? I mean, is this is this a market-driven thing as well as something that's happening because of regulation, because of business models changing? Yeah, that's I, I honestly am not sure whether it's a um, a chicken or egg kind of analysis. I mean, the 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 path that you just laid out. Um, for the for the advent or the maybe the ascension of the RIA as a as a really important um, element of our of our industry, I'm not sure that that that's not more a direct result of what's gone on in some of the larger firms than it is um, you know a, a, a recasting of the regulatory framework. So what I mean by that is, starting in about 2000. I think more more or less in earnest. Now there certainly were RIAs before that, but starting in about 2000, when we had the the tech crash, and then some sort of major high profile stumbles by by name brands um, in in the wealth management business, 
that process kicked off a series of events that lasted all through um, the 2000s and really culminated in you know, the 0809 timeframe with folks like Baron Lehman going out of business, um, you know, uh, Wells having issues, or, you know, the, the advisor groups um, at various companies basically being bought or sold for nothing, um, you know, Merrill almost going out of business and all, all of these things which um, really fundamentally impact the, the client, the advisor client relationship. I mean, it's, you know, that what, what the banks don't really understand, or well, they probably understand it, they don't want to believe it, is that the, the real relationship is not with JP Morgan, the brand, or Merrill Lynch, the brand. In the client's mind, the relationship is with the advisor. And the advisor uses Wells Fargo or Morgan Stanley or whatever firm as the back office functionary to execute business and to take care of the client. When those firms, and I'm using that term broadly, I'm not pointing to any one firm in particular, but when firms ran into trouble reputationally for a variety of things, and there's just been a laundry list, uh, which is still going on, um, it put a lot of pressure on financial advisors and their relationship with their clients, because all of this is predicated on trust. And trust is the first thing to go when you have a, a reputational ding. And it's a very hard thing to earn, as our parents taught us, and it's a very easy thing to lose. So I think what has happened over the last decade or so is that advisors have been seeking alternatives to that brand um, and that that risk, frankly, that's associated with that brand. When you have 15,000 financial advisors spread all over the country, you know, the, the, the legal and risk and compliance constructs in those organizations is designed to limit as much as possible and eliminate as much as possible risk. And, and very often the practical realities of that, of that activity mean that you know, there's kind of a working towards the lowest common denominator theme, which can put a lot of pressure on, um, you know, upstanding, smart um, advisors that want to work uh, more on the cutting edge and, and do things that clients may be asking for that are outside of, kind of the standard meat and potatoes um, asset management. So you put all these factors together in a pot and what you have is, you know, a fairly healthy level of discontent. And so advisors started looking for, for alternatives and, and many of these alternatives were relatively nascent in the early 2000s have really grown. And so you've seen the rise first of the independent broker dealers, um, you know, the likes of LPL and uh, other firms like that, then you saw a real surge of uh, the growth in the RIA. And this hybrid business that we are in, which has a foot in each world, it's actually been the fastest growing segment of the independent space over the last, say, five or six years. Why, why is that? And, is it because of flexibility or is it? Yeah, I, I believe that it is. Um, and, and I believe that it's because, you know, while, again, while there are arguments about this, Commission business in and of itself is not an evil um, and fee business in and of itself is not salvation. And so there are real reasons um, that clients and advisors would want to have access to both sides. That's point number one. Point number two is 
that's the environment that all the advisors coming out of these big firms come from. So, you know, they, they're used to being able to do a fee-based business for, for a certain portion of their assets with their clients, and they're used to be, being able to do commission business. When the grandfather says, I want to buy my granddaughter six shares of Disney for her birthday, you want to be able to accommodate that trade, right? So for ease of use, functionality, and the, um, you know, the kind of the longstanding way advisors have done their business, this hybrid business makes the most sense. So I think that's really what's happened. I think you, what you've seen is um, people wanting to find an alternative to being regulated the same as 15,000 other people, people wanting an alternative to a brand that doesn't always serve their interests um, from a reputational standpoint, and wanting the flexibility to you know, run their business, uh, brand their business, market their business in a, in a way that's authentic to them. Um, that really connects with their clients and allows them to wear, you know, as simple as it is, wear what they want to wear, um, have their office where they want to have it, that sort of thing. And so the freedoms afforded to advisors who who are successful in the independent space um, are really great, and and they really improve your quality of life. And and there are firms out there like ours and others that will facilitate that move and help advisors achieve that goal of independence in a way that makes it. Um, you know, uh, palatable and, and less less terrifying to leave a, a career-long position at one firm and, and, you know, strike out on your own. Kester then provides some of the backbone, the, the sort of day-to-day nuts and bolts um, stuff you need to, to buy and sell securities on behalf of clients um, or to provide uh, broker-dealer brokerage services for them. Um, what else do you guys do for clients beyond that? I mean, it, it, clients in this case being the RIAs who are themselves serving their client base. Um, what else do you provide? Is it is it is it sort of providing a, a similar, although um, scaled down brand to a traditional wirehouse, or is it more all behind the scenes stuff? Like, is a client ever going to have is one or one of your RIAs ever going to have someone come into their office and say, "Oh, you're affiliated with Kestra. I just saw a commercial for them," or something like that? The so for just a a point of distinction, so. With Kester Private Wealth Services, we we are a single RIA entity, right? So every advisor that works with us is working in the same RIA. So they're not multiple RIAs. There are models that exist where that is the case, where there is um, a network, let's say, of RIAs that plug into a hub. In our case, it's a single RIA, and there are a lot of reasons for that, which we can talk about um, that, again, make things easier for advisors from a compliance and regulatory standpoint. But um, to get specifically to the answer to your question, the analogy I'd like to use when I talk to people about this is the one of a hospital. So I think that we, Kester uh, Private Wealth, we operate as the hospital, if you will, the physical plant with the infrastructure and, and all of that. The advisors are the surgeons and they come to work at the hospital. We, we want them to come to work at the hospital. Um, and they want to come into the operating room and perform surgery. What they don't want to do is, you know, sterilize equipment, wheel patients to the curb, handle the billing inquiries and things like that. So that's what we do as the hospital. We take care of the infrastructure for advisors from the, you know, paper clips in their drawer to, to the signage on the exterior of the building and basically everything in between. 
Um, advisors have certain expenses that they pay, which gives them flexibility in terms of how they want to administer their business on the ground where they are. Um, but, but by and large, you're right. We are providing a, a scaled down infrastructure um, similar to what they've had at the large firm where they work. With, with the important point being that we don't have helicopters or equity research sales or uh, MES finance groups or black car service. Um, you know, our, so <laughs> it's a scaled down version for sure, um, but we never want to try to be a Morgan Stanley and we never want to try to be um, a Merrill Lynch. That's not in our game plan. And because our focus is solely on supporting advisors, who do this type of business, we're able to run the business in a way that's economically profitable for us and economically profitable for the advisor. And they take home the lion's share of the revenue. What would a typical revenue split look like, hypothetically? I mean, uh, I'm not sure how much you're able to disclose, but but if you're um, at a wirehouse with a certain amount of AUM and you convert into an RIA and what happens next? What, what sort of revenue split are you looking at? Yeah. So, so a very, a very standard example would be a wirehouse split. So advisors sitting in a wirehouse today, that, that advisor is giving 60% of their revenue to the house and keeping 40. That's a, and that's a new, you know, it's a generalization, but that's a fairly standard number. Um, in our model for the first two years, the advisor keeps 70 and we keep 30. And after that it scales up. And so after two years, an advisor's payout could be anywhere between 70 to 80 percent um, on the advisory side of the business and slightly less than that on the broker dealer side of the business. Now, does converting to an independent um, advisor advisory service becoming part of Kestra, for instance, does that often um, reduce gross revenues because because now people are charging um fee-based services as opposed to higher revenue um, brokerage type services? Or is the transition fairly seamless in terms of like the top line revenue numbers? You know, obviously the split goes up if you're an independent advisor significantly, but does, is there any impact on top line revenues as well? There's a there's probably a slight degradation to top line revenues only because um, in the independent space, getting paid on lending is extremely difficult. Getting paid on mortgages is extremely difficult. And over the last 10 years or so, because of the bank involvement in large brokerage businesses, they have built up um, loan books you know, across the institutional platform as well, obviously, as in the advisor's book of business. So you know, your top line may take a half a step back based on issues related to things like that. But because the revenue split is so much more aggressively in your favor, advisors are getting an uptick on a cash flow basis. And that's interesting, too. You mentioned sort of other products. I think a fairly common complaint you hear from people is is the cross-selling just being inappropriate. Obviously, some places that run um, large brokerage teams have gotten into trouble for cross-selling um, in recent years. So, you know, to the point where not just is cross-selling annoying, but is it actually regulatory com regulatorily compliant? Um, you you do, you guys don't do any of that, right? Because you're not a bank. What's the point of cross-selling a mortgage to somebody if you don't have the ability to make the mortgage loan in the first place? Yeah, exactly. So you know, sometimes sometimes I wish we were a bank because I remember 
my days, um, you know, both both as an advisor and in management at the wirehouses and realizing that you, know, you can pick up 10 points um, on the bottom line with solid lending revenues, really. But um, at the same time, it's great not to have any of those kinds of conflicts in our business channel and, and to just operate in a very pure um, advisory and brokers way the way that we do. So, um, you know, is it a valuable uh, part of the business? For the institution, it definitely is. Do we have any cross-selling? Absolutely not. I mean, that's part of the beauty of being independent um, is that- I should add probably too that there's a little bit of a trade-off there from a consumer perspective. It's not like a pure win, obviously not having someone you're constantly trying to do financial transactions that might not be exactly what you need is kind of a good thing. But, you know, I, I for instance, use a really, really hacked down um, bank that um, does, it doesn't have any physical locations. It's, right. I, I don't have a checkbook. I love it. It's great. But I can't get my mortgage from them if I want to go buy a house, right? right? Which is not a problem at the moment for me, but could be a bit of a pain one day to have to go start an entirely new relationship for something that, you know, I'm, I, I have a bank account, but the bank in question doesn't really operate the way a traditional bank does. So I don't get that benefit of having an easy person to talk to about a mortgage again, hypothetically. Yeah. Hypothetically, that's, that's true. I think what the, here's the, here's the actual reality. There's yet to be a product or service that we've wanted for an advisor or a client, an end client that we have not been able to figure out how to access and, and bring into our platform. This, the difference being um, our advisors not getting paid on some sort of um, fee sharing arrangement to uh, direct mortgage business, let's say, to a mortgage broker, right? So, you know, we doesn't mean we can't provide the service. Doesn't mean we can't connect you, plug you in, get you up and running. We do that, uh, we, and we do that regularly. Doesn't mean that we can't. Um, you know, do a securities-based loan for a client. We do all we do those all the time. the The great thing about this business is, as it has grown over the last, say, six to eight years, in particular, the sophistication has ramped. So, um, we, you know, not to not to muddy the waters here too much with regard to how fees and things are paid, but just just talking strictly about um, access to let's call it product. Um, everything from, excuse me, everything from IPOs to mortgages, we've, we've found a way to build into our platform. So if you're coming out of a wirehouse now and you say to us, you know, gosh, I don't really, I don't spend a lot of time doing this, but I do have some clients that really love to, um, get IPO stock when they can, when, when it's available. Five years ago, you couldn't, we, we couldn't say that that was something we could do. We can do it now. Um, and, and so the, the push of sophisticated advisors leaving those big firms and coming into this independent space has really helped us to ramp the, the complexity and sophistication of our platform and, and other platforms have seen similar types of growth. When, when there wasn't enough demand, there weren't people willing to build structures that created access to products like that. But as demand has really started to accelerate, you see people on the institutional side of the wirehouse business or the capital markets businesses leaving and starting shops that specialize in a variety of niche businesses. And then independent advisors all over the country are plugging into these businesses and being able to offer very similar services um, that they, you know, that they offered when they were at one of the large firms. 
it's a really interesting example of a virtuous cycle in uh, in 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 the business world in economics generally. I mean, you look at a place like Silicon Valley, where well, why is everyone in Silicon Valley? Because everyone's in Silicon Valley in the tech industry, right? right? It, the, the creation of new um, sources of supply induces more demand, which induces more supply, which induces more demand, and so on and so forth. That's exactly what it is, and it's and it's not at all unlike the you know what happens when. Um, large tech companies around the year 2000 fail, implode, blow up and hit the ground and people scatter all over the place to create a variety of new businesses, right? When Sun Microsystems came apart, a bunch of new um, networking companies were built. And when those companies hit the, you know, hit the peak of their maturity cycle or broke up or sold or what have you, they broke up again and a new generation of, of product and technology was created. And, and the same exact thing has happened in the you know, big bank asset management business. People, you know, as, per, as firms have peaked and failed and peaked and downsized or blown up or anything like that, the, the talent scatters. People become entrepreneur either you know, by desire or by force. And great things happen. And, and that's what's happened in our business. So I guess pivoting a little bit uh, earlier, we had discussed the relationship between um, the RIA industry and the traditional wirehouse industry, but also mentioned that there's this other shift between active and passive going on. Can you sort of talk a little bit about how you guys think about um, that shift that's that's sort of taking place at the same time and how it how it benefits you and how it might hurt you as well? I mean, really if you want to go full passive hypothetically as a as a as an individual investor you don't need an advisor at all right there's you know not necessarily suggesting this as a course of action but if you really want to do it yourself you can do it yourself um, with uh, specific mutual funds or ETFs and it's not that hard to do I mean it's really whereas 20 years ago it would have been pretty hard to do um, at the same time um, I feel like the you know if, if you're in an RAA structure where you're now held to a slightly higher standard of care, um, the you know the idea that asset turnover doesn't actually help you uh, increase revenue, maybe that's going to be a little bit more friendly towards indexing than um, a sort of uh, high turnover um, commissions-based strategy. Um, do you want to talk about how that all sort of ties together for for your um, advisors and for your business? Yeah, sure. So I'll just start with a personal example. So um, I began my career at DLJ in New York. And what we were trained to do there was to um, allocate client assets into separately managed accounts, um, the way large endowments and institutions had done for decades. But we were trained to do this for individuals. And, and you know, there were in-house um, account managers, and there were obviously the the folks outside um, that managed money in that way. And so that's what my partner and I did. And we worked with um, family office groups and public company executives and, and you know, people of, of great wealth. And um, it's, a, it's a reasonably effective strategy. It's, you know, it's an asset allocation model. It's, um, you know, a rebalancing approach, et cetera. And, and you know, it's a macro econ kind of research driven approach to, to the world. Nothing, um, you know, the, these days that would be considered terribly cutting edge. But that's that's how we did it. In about 2003, my partner and I 
noticed this advent of these ETFs and you know these index funds that were now called ETFs that you could trade um, like a stock, and we were fascinated by that. And so what we did was we set up a model portfolio using you know I think there were probably ten ETFs available at that time, and uh, we we did a broad diversification. We set up a a portfolio in each of our um, uh, IRAs. And we, and we ran that portfolio for a year. And we were shocked with what we found. What we found was the diversification was amazing, um, better than we could achieve in separately managed accounts. The turnover was virtually nil. The monthly and annual statements were about four pages long as opposed to 100. And we thought, this is amazing. And we, oh, and you know, had the added benefit of some currency tailwinds and some international exposure, and we beat the S&P by 600 basis points, not because maybe that was the right benchmark, but that was the benchmark everyone cared about, and that's, that was the result in that year. So we took that idea to a couple of our clients, and we said, look, we, we've just sort of beta tested this on ourselves. This is what happened. We really like this. We'd like to try this um, with, with some of your funds. And the response was basically, like, you, you should be doing this with all of my funds, and you should have been doing this two years ago. <laughs> and so it, it, it happened so quickly that our book migrated away from these separately managed accounts, less so on the fixed income side, because back then um, it was still reasonable to charge a fee for fixed income because there was you know actually some spread in the market um, and there were rates. Um, but on the equity side, for sure, we were really focused on using ETFs and we and we never got away from that so we stayed with that um, all through the 2000s the um, so so the result of that is I'm a big believer in using I guess we call them passive assets um, using passive assets to underpin a portfolio strategy and look I the the ETF market I mean there's an ETF for everything I I, I don't know if there is one yet, but I would be willing to bet in the next five minutes, somebody's going to invent or bring out the, you know, the Trump ETF, like how to how to respond to Trump policy using an ETF. Well, so we certainly bespoke does have a, a Trump portfolio. If, I mean, just to throw that plug in there. Well, so I'm sure the ETF is right around the corner. <laughs> it's right. Exactly. So, you know, that that will probably come. So so what's active and what's passive has gotten a little bit blurred, maybe. Um, in the, the last few years as people have tried to come up with, you know, ever more exotic combinations. But that being said, when you get down to what really matters to clients, when we're talking about risk in my world, um, I am not you know, using derivatives any longer to hedge risk, and, and nor are the advisors in our RIA. Risk in our world these days is our relatively affluent clientele outliving their money or having some sort of financial catastrophe that would cause them to run out of money prior to their death. That's kind of like risk number one. Um, what do they care about? They care about their tax bill. Uh, they care about transparency. They care about ease of understanding their investments, their, um, their performance. Obviously, they care about that um, and a variety of other um, fundamental issues. In that regard, passive investments are extremely useful because, look, statistically speaking, George, there just aren't a lot of asset managers that can outperform the index. Uh, you know, on a gross basis, 
much less on a net basis, much less on a net basis after tax. And the, the unfortunate problem that it, most uh, investors have is that choosing those types of asset managers is really easy, but only when you're doing it in the rearview mirror, which by then it's too late. So it's a very difficult thing to get at. Uh, I don't know how to rationalize a, a lot of expensive asset management um, uh, vehicles that don't generate alpha. Um, you know, in the absence of alpha, alpha, those things are difficult to, to rationalize. So I think that passive definitely has a place. I think that we can manage risk with, with uh, passive investments. Doesn't mean we can eliminate risk, but we can manage risk. Um, and more fundamentally, we can do for our clients what they really need done, which is you know, a, a long-term investment strategy that grows assets at a reasonable rate um, for a given amount of risk. But, but here's, the, here's the real important caveat, in my opinion. And this is related to your question, but it's not specifically a part of it. This, our industry has, for so long, hung its hat on performance um, equaling the fee or justifying the asset management fee. And I think one of the things that the DOL, in particular, um, has forced me to think about is, and you know, we'll see if uh, the DOL regulations come to pass, and we can talk about what that means. But yeah, if we could just, if we could just back just for one second, what is DOL? Um, like really quick, we can continue with this, and then we can definitely talk more about DOL. I just want to make sure that people are familiar with the term. Yeah. So the, the DOL, uh, very industry term, but the DOL is is some a set of regulations coming from the Department of Labor that would seek to um, control. Uh, administer and set very stringent rules for conflicts of interest related to the way um, financial advisors, asset managers manage assets on behalf of clients. So it's very heavy on disclosures of any kinds of conflicts or potential conflicts. Um, it's very onerous and cumbersome in terms of its administration and what it means to um, large businesses that, that manage a lot of money. Um, and it's in some respects, it's fundamentally rewriting the rules of the way the industry has done business um, for the better part of 30 or 40 years, all in a time frame that is about six months. I mean, the, these these regulations were announced um, roughly, well, not even really purely announced, but we're, we're beginning to be disclosed mid-year last year, and they're set to take effect um, before mid-year this year. And the industry is scrambling to understand all the impacts to various um, streams of income, et cetera, and all the obligations that um, must be met by firms like ours and anybody really who's, who's in this business. So it's a, it's a fairly complicated regulatory reconstruction of the um, uh, conflict of interest rules and, um, and you know how that relates to asset management. So just holding that aside for a second, I think that the thing that, that this process has forced me to consider is this idea that the fee for asset management, which we all talk about as being commoditized, right? It's, that's all we ever talk about in our business is how there's been fee compression for 20 or 30 years. Um, there's com there was, first there was commission compression. Now there's asset management fee compression. Um, you know, someday it's going to be impossible to make any money doing this business in quotes. 
And, and what we're looking past, in my opinion, and what the DOL is kind of highlighting, maybe, maybe, maybe intended and maybe unintended, is that we give away a lot of stuff that we ought to be charging for. So what, when I look over the horizon, so to speak, if the DOL regulations come to pass, and there's some reason at this stage of the game um, to believe that may not happen, as with a lot of other regulations given the new administration, but should they come to pass? What I see is a business that ought to probably consider the fact that they give away things like financial planning, which are extremely valuable um, if done right and done well. They give that away and embed it in the quote unquote service offering to help bolster the justification for the asset management fee. Well, in a business where you have endless fee compression, I don't know how long that strategy will really work one way or the other. I mean, but as you rightly pointed out, there with with indexing and you know seven dollar commissions and mobile apps as good as what Fidelity and other firms are making, anyone can go on and, and run a rough asset asset allocation for themselves and, and put money to work. So to me, the the way our business might probably should go, and I think this is a, a virtuous um, sort of outcome is is towards a real focus on fee-based financial planning, really making the financial plan the center of the client's universe. And, and that done properly in so many ways mitigates massive risks of the kind of which I was talking about before. If, if a client has a real financial plan, knows what that plan is, knows all the implications of it, and I'm not talking about an asset allocation plan. I'm talking about where they're where their wills are physically, um, what their irrevocable life insurance trust looks like, and what assets are titled properly to be in that trust. Um, who is on the phone tree if they're hit by the crosstown bus tomorrow? What happens? Um, you know, all, all of these real life, who's the guardian of their children should both parents die in an accident? I mean, all of these things are things that people genuinely care about, really want answers to, and are often overlooked by financial planners, or I'm sorry, by by uh, financial advisors who really who really sit in the ideal spot in the client's life to address all of these issues. Now, if you're doing that, and you're doing that well, my guess is that the the fee conversation is a lot easier to have, and the idea of fee compression begins to go away because what you're no longer doing is fighting with Fidelity's mobile app or TD Ameritrade's mobile app. You're, you're a real human being with deep intellect, robust tools that can sew together all the various aspects of the client's financial life, put them in front of the client in a way that he or she can see them and understand them. And you're solving so many issues from organization to guardianship to simply not outliving your money um, end to end. And that is where the fee is applied. So it's a long-winded sort of um, discussion there, but I, I really do believe that. Again, to summarize, going from a world where you have a variety of services that are provided in a bundle supported by uh, one fee on a certain type of activity, so the two are disconnected, it looks like you're paying too much for something that should be cheaper elsewhere, um, when in reality you're getting a bunch of stuff for that, for that fee. Switching that mindset to say, okay, 
you know, we are going to provide you stuff, but it is explicitly going to be part of the cost. We are going to remind you that we are helping you with planning. We are helping you with the idea of staying in the market when you're you're freaking out and should you know want to sell everything in a panic. We are helping with you as you know, sort of helping plan future costs, future um, uh, gains in your assets, uh, all kinds of different tax issues. Um, all kinds of different, um, you know, logistical stuff that needs to get handled. We're going to be there to help hand, hold your hand through all that, but it's not free. We need to get paid, and that's why this costs more. Um, is that a, is that a safe way to describe that? Yeah, I, I think it is. I mean, what you're what you're really talking about there is you're talking about getting a client's financial life in order. And again, going back to my own experience, I worked with public company executives that had stock certificates in their credenza behind them in their office. So just because someone is financially well off or has a successful career doesn't mean that their financial life is, you know, is properly organized. In fact, very often there's an inverse relationship. It's sort of the, you know, the cobbler's kids that have no shoes. These folks are so busy taking care of their obligations for their corporation or their or their company that they don't have time to address these issues themselves, which presents real opportunity for you know a solid financial planner. So you've, you've got the organizational component, you've got the accountability component, which is you know we're gonna hold you accountable and you're gonna hold us accountable. You've got the objectivity component, which is we're going to fly at 30,000 feet, we're not going to you know sell Facebook ahead of the earnings call or, or things of that nature. We're going, to, we're going to remain objective, we're going to be proactive, we're going to keep you educated, and we're going to work in partnership. When, when those sorts of relationships are in place, fees are really almost irrelevant. I, and from a client's perspective, the, as long as the client views the fees as fair, I don't think you're going to get a lot of pushback on fees. And I don't think you're going to have to, as the financial advisor, do a lot of explaining as, as to what these fees are. I think it's an interesting thing too to sort of emphasize that um, you know to folks whether they're a client of an RIA, a client of a wirehouse, um, a client of Kestra, a client of Bespoke, whoever uh, you know, they're they're it's important to understand that not only um, are you maybe receiving stuff that you don't necessarily think is a benefit, but that you should be able to receive stuff that, you know, is out there in terms of expertise, in terms of the ability to help you plan. That's sort of part of the job of the industry. And, you know, if you're not taking advantage of that, well, maybe think about, you know, giving your advisor a call and making sure that, you know, you're being educated by them as well as having sort of the the, the nuts and bolts services of executing transactions and, you know, managing portfolios, all of that. Yes, absolutely. But there's other stuff as well that you should sort of be asking for as a client. Is that, is that kind of a fair comment, you think? Yeah, I, that's very well said. And I think that, as you said, that the thought occurred to me, like, God help us if we have to rely on the Department of Labor to be the impetus for us to, you know, to evolve, um, to evolve our service offering or to do, you know, bring into our sphere of influence more tools that are for the client's benefit. I mean, that should not be coming from the government. That obviously that should be coming from the industry. And, and we have an obligation to stay in front of that and bring those sorts of tools to bear. It'd be nice to get your read on where the markets are at. We've had an extremely eventful uh, 
well, I guess three months since the election um, in the U.S., uh, we've got a lot of interesting sort of policy turning points underway. There are other uh, geopolitical considerations at stake beyond the narrow scope of an American perspective. Uh, central banking is really interesting right now. So tons of stuff to talk about. We won't spend too much time on it because you've already been kind enough to spend a good chunk of your time with us today. But uh, it'd be great to sort of get your read on, on where you think markets are at here, um, just in a general in a general sense, um, you know, on at the start of February 2017. Sure. Um, you know, I, I think we've talked about this, but I, I argued with Rick Santelli for the better part of two years about rate rate cuts. And, and we, we, we did come to a consensus um, that the rate cut was coming that we got in December. Um, the, the rate hike. I'm, I'm sorry, rate hike. I apologize. Uh, the rate hike. I, I, I look at March and I'm, I already have this feeling based on the comments that I read. And as I, as I noted to you, I've been kind of on a plane for the last two days, but, um, what I've been able to gather, uh, from the minutes, I, I already see a, a fed not in a hurry here. Um, so just from a, a strict interest rate standpoint, I, I don't know three, the the number that everyone's saying is three cuts this or three hikes this year. I'm sorry, um, I I don't know if that happens, but I think a lot of it will depend on the way um, some of these policies uh, that are you know in the in the midst of getting rolled out um, either come to fruition and roll out or or don't or how they are altered in the course of doing that. We fully agree, by the way, based on I mean we're the day after uh, the February first Fed decision here, just so everyone knows the context. Um, our reaction to that was that they're in no rush to hike, and again they've stressed that um, for the members of the committee that are in, you know assuming some sort of fiscal impulse, uh, it's all contingent. They they understand that it might not come yet, and that they're not assuming that it will. So um, just just to add that coda, I think you and I are definitely on the same page there, Rob. That's good to know that we agree because you are much smarter than am I on this stuff. So I'm I'm happy to follow your your lead on that. Um, I, I look, I think that the market, um, to me, the market looks like a deer on the top of a hill, silhouetted with the hunter, you know, down below looking up at it. It's like the market looks so desperate to want to take a breather here, digest, sell off, go down a little bit, not in any kind of major way, but that's how the, that's how the economy um, feels to me too in this respect that, you know, we've got the two, 2% or so GDP run rate. It'd be great to get to three, but I don't, I don't see yet enough evidence that, you know, there's some sort of real strong acceleration coming. The, you know, the employment number we get tomorrow, I think will be a good indicator. Um, the the ISM number that I saw from I think it was yesterday looked reasonably good cost of goods sold and stuff so there's a little inflation kind of coming into the system um, that's a positive overall I think but we've got a long we still got a long way to go I I don't say that in a negative sense I just mean that I don't believe that um, we're going to see any kind of like rocketing to the upside I don't I, I doubt anyone really feels that that's the case. But what I do believe that we're going to see, and I've felt this way since the election, is I believe we're going to continue to see volatility. Um, and that, to a certain extent, informs some of my investment thinking at the moment. So, you know, to I hate to get on the bandwagon and talk about Trump, 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 um, in, in terms of his impact. But 
we have a we have a guy here who's never been a politician before. Um, he's never been in Washington before, and he doesn't operate like a normal politician operates. Um, from tweeting to you know kind of off the cuff um, remarks, this guy has the potential to move the market. Now, does that mean that? I wait with bated breath or that I've got a hair trigger designed to counter. No, I think that that's a waste of time. And that's not something that, that, um, I or my, um, firm or my firm's clients probably really are equipped to even address. But it does mean that as trade policy gets worked out and border taxes either come to fruition or don't, that there will be sort of gyrations in the market on a more macro level that will cause more volatility than we've seen. And, and I think that the run-up since the election had, has been great, but let, while earnings have been good in that time frame, I mean, let's be honest, this, this run-up was due in large part to a renewed sense of optimism and a belief that um, a lot of the policies that will ultimately come to pass will, will be favorable um, to businesses overall. And I don't think there's anything to disagree with there. Um, and the market is a forward-looking um, predictor of outcomes. So all of, all of what's happened is reasonable to expect, and, and I don't think it's out of line. But I think that it, it's been a little too much, a little too soon. I don't think that the market properly accounted for the the judicial branch and their ability to intervene here. Um, you know, as someone that went to law school, this has been on my mind and, and judicial activism is, is, uh, is definitely, um, an item that needs to be taken into consideration here. There are a lot of, um, federal judges that are not going to take some of these policies lying down. And so there's going to be interference, um, from judicial activists, rightly or wrongly. I'm not making a judgment call. I'm just saying that, that that's, likely to be a part of this process. And we're going to see resulting volatility for that from that. So, you know, you, you, you see the impact on financials. I think even today, I think we're still seeing um, some selling in the financial space. But I would look at companies like CME and expect CME via a combination of uh, more capital markets activity and more uh, volatility in general as a company I would want to own here. Um, and, and own it for some time. And, and there are other examples like that. But so I, you know, I'm kind of on a tangent here, George, but um, I do believe that Trump is a factor. I don't want to make that too much of a factor, but it's these macro policy decisions related to things like tax reform, you know, um, overseas cash and repatriation, even, even the deductibility of interest, right, in the, in the tax plan. I mean, all these things, they matter. That that's one that hasn't been considered at all, and and really, I mean, if you talk about what it would do to the U.S. Yeah. corporate bond market, um, removing the tax deductibility of interest for U.S. corporations. Now, whether it's a good policy or not, you can have endless discussions on it. I think there's some very good right. arguments that it's a good it's a good policy, but uh, it's a huge delta, regardless of whether it's a good policy or bad policy. You can say with certainty it's a massive delta, and I think that's true of other 
examples as well, and the the way that policy is being introduced. So so far, uh, we have not seen a lot of cooperation between Congress and the president. Um, you know, relative to the start of of terms, especially in a unified government like this with one party controlling all three, or both houses of Congress and the uh, presidency. Um, you know, they're they're not on the same page, um, and the president is doing a lot of stuff with executive orders. That that is just that's a more volatile situation than if everyone said kumbaya and immediately got to work on, you know, agreeing as best they could on a corporate tax reform policy. Right. You know, I, I think there are good reasons to expect volatility that have nothing to do with the specific policies themselves, but are a function of, you know, how those policies are being introduced and the mechanisms that are being used to introduce or to counteract those policies um, in either direction. I think I think that all of that just says more volatility. Yeah, agreed. And it's like, I think it was Anthony Scaramucci who said more or less the day or two after the election. It was a phrase that just stuck in my mind. I thought it was brilliant. He said, look, it's not that anything it's, has changed. There's just a removal of the overhang of what could have changed to the to the negative. And I think this was in the context of explaining the, the rapid rise in financials. And And I kind of feel like that cycle has almost played itself out now. And we're sort of on the other side of it, right? Which is, there's a new overhang. And, um, you know, the market has had time to digest the implications of the, um, you know, the, the presented future policies and now understands what most of those implications are, positively and negatively. And, and the new overhang is now, well, what's it going to be? And, and I think until, this is really where we started, but I think until we start to see more about which direction we ultimately end up going, to your point, I don't. It's hard to. It's hard to know. I mean, look, I could look at. I can look at Apple and say, and I think it was City that did this work, but I, I, I could look at Apple and say, you know, look, if if they get a, if they get the corporate tax rate that Trump's proposing, I get a ten percent boost to stock price next year, and if they get the um, if they get the repatriation tax rate that Trump is proposing and they spend 20% of that or so on repurchase, they get another 6%. I get another 6, 6% in stock price. So I can make a case for a 16% rise in Apple based on that policy. What I, I own Apple, but would, would I go buy more right now based on that? I, I don't know. It's like I said to somebody a month or so ago. I mean, I think if we spend our lives making investment decisions based on politicians and their promises, I, I think we would be worse off. Um, yeah, now, you know it's, I mean? it's tough to do. Yeah. I, do you not think that the market is is taking a, a very positive spin on a lot of the possible policy changes? I mean, I'm just sort of thinking about what you were just talking about with regards to, okay, well, if um, the corporate tax rate goes down and then there's a repatriation tax holiday and then, okay, those would unquestionably be good policy outcomes for stock prices mm -hmm. what happens if apples what happens to apple's gross margins and therefore their overall profitability if they now have to make you know half of their materials in the united states well, um well, you know yeah, and is I, that is that properly being discounted yeah um you know there, there's just so much going on and so and to me the uncertainty is just unbelievable i i look at a lot of these policies and it's like i have no idea what's going to happen i have no idea at all <laughs> that, that's a literal statement right i mean it, it, it's, it's a, maybe the first time in our lives that we're faced with something that we literally have never seen before um look i'm torn because fundamentally, I don't believe it's the government's job to make that kind of, to put that kind of edict on corporations. I just don't. Um, you know, there's there's a strong sort of University of Chicago libertarian economic streak in me. And 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 that's 
my viewpoint. Um, you know, I don't believe it. At the same time, threatening a border tax um, to extract concessions in trade agreements with our primary trading company countries or partners is is a great idea if that's what that is, right? But yeah. I'm not sure I can say with 100% confidence that that's what that is. I mean, look, there's one thing about Trump thus far that um, I think seems relatively consistent, and that is he does what he says he's going to do. Um, whether the uh, proposed border tax is the same or just a tool remains to be seen. If it's a tool, then, hey, it may ultimately be one of the more effective strategies we've seen in the modern era. Um, if, it's a, if it's a real plan, well, then everyone's just going to have to get used to the fact that things are going to cost more, right? I mean, and, and to the extent that, if I, if I take a glass half full approach to that, um, if it normalizes cost of goods, and Honestly, I'm more worried about protecting U.S. exports at that stage of the game than worrying about imports. But holding that aside for a second, if it does stimulate um, job creation, you know, introduces um, you know manufacturing-based sort of repatriation, if you will, into the United States, then then there's there's some plausible benefit for that. But man, we've got a long way to go between yeah. here and there. Yeah, uh, I think we've got a long way to go between here and even knowing what the policy outcomes will be, let alone, policy proposals will be, let alone their actual effects in the real world. Uh, it's, a, it's you know, I, I think of the old Chinese proverb, may you, actually it's a curse, may you live in interesting times. We certainly, <laughs> we certainly are yeah. in that. Um, so I, we are about out of time here, Rob. I don't wanna take you and yak your, your ear off all morning. It's been great having you on. Before we go, we do a quick segment called Trading Rich, Trading Cheap. I'm just gonna throw a couple, kind of like word association. I'm just gonna throw out four different uh, topics and you're just gonna tell me whether you think they're trading rich or trading cheap. And it doesn't have to be in a financial sense. It's just however you kind of wanna interpret it. So um, since you're a West Coast guy, we've had a number of other West Coast guys on Meb Faber, uh, we've had Mark Dow on as well. California, is it trading rich or trading cheap? Real estate out there is extremely expensive, but at the same time, I mean, there's nothing better than the California lifestyle. There are water issues sometimes. I don't know, trading rich or trading cheap? Rich. Real estate is through the roof, and the reason that real estate is through the roof is because it's a great place to live, um, weather-wise. No mosquitoes little humidity, sunshine most of the year. Um, drought has kind of ebbed. We've been pummeled with rain for the last month or so. And so we're back. I think we're mostly out of drought conditions, which is great. The um, income tax rate is obscene. The cost of gasoline as a result of state tax is obscene. The um, personal freedoms infringed upon by um, lawmakers is obscene. Um, you know, it's there. It depends on the kind of person you are, George. Honestly, I mean, I, I think that if if uh, if you like guns, you're not going to like California. Um, you know, if you want to if you want a fully suppressed, integrated AR-15 that you like to go out and shoot um, a mile from your house and uh, that sort of thing, this is not a, this is not the state for you. Um, but if you like to Go to the beach, and uh, you don't mind paying higher taxes, and you know an upside-down state government with sort of delusional um, 
financial prospects and, and policies doesn't bother you, then you'll love it here. Okay. U.S. dollar, trading rich or trading cheap? Cheap. On the dollar, the dollar has a gravitational pull. So I don't know if it's rich or cheap. I would say it's it's kind of um, in homeostasis. Um, and, and I think that you look at all the other currencies of the uh, the developed world, they're all kind of, every, basically the dollar has every headwind it can have at the moment. I, I don't see, um, you know, a whole lot of uptrend there. So I think I'll just leave it at that. Okay. Uh, we had a divisive presidential campaign and, you know, we're trying to sort through all that. Do you think, um, do you think politeness is trading rich or trading cheap? <laughs> I'm not sure how to answer that because I'm not sure what the implications of either answer are, but I, um, is <laughs> I'll let you, whatever interpretation you want to go yeah, with. I, I will say that, um, politeness is a, is a, uh, value stock at the moment. How about that? Um, social media has, I think been a massive accelerant on the degradation of politeness in, and, and our, um, our discourse, this is almost cliche, but our discourse and the level of it has plummeted in a way I've never seen before. And at the same time, it has raised a level of vitriol that I've never seen before. And I think that folks on the left are so upset and have been, you know, rightly or wrongly, um, whipped into a fervor by fake news, right? Folks on the right, same thing. Um, but the violence that's coming from the left at the moment is, is unique, at least in my lifetime. Um, it's not that we haven't had it before. It's just been a long time since we've had it. I don't see as much of that coming from the right, but, but social discourse is, is a cousin to that. And it has, it has gone in the tank. And I think so much of that is a product of the fact that people, um, feel really strong when they're sitting behind their keyboard. First of all, I love Facebook. Let me just be the first one to say I love Facebook, but I don't personally believe that I was ever, uh, that, that I was designed to have 850 people's opinions in my face all day, every day on a minute by minute basis. I don't know. How, there's something in our brain that makes us want to participate in that. Um, there's some kind of genetic, you know, need to communicate or, or what have you. Um, I, I don't know. I don't think it's healthy. Uh, it's it's particularly unhealthy when we're as um, bifurcated as a people as we are. So I, I think that social media has played a big role in the downdraft of um, the politeness in the conversation. And I don't know what the solution is there. I, I'm I'm doing what I can as best I can, and it's not perfect to really just avoid social media at this stage of the game which I've wondered over the last couple of weeks if that doesn't have an implication um, from an investment standpoint for companies like Facebook. I, I don't know that it does necessarily. I think that those businesses have diversified um, in ways that make um, that conversation more like Apple is all about the phone. Facebook is not just about your wall. It's, it's about so many other things now. So, But to, but to the overarching question, the um, – politeness value stock yeah lots of room to get up to go up from here 
Okay, last one, uh, U.S. equity markets. And I don't mean, you know, is the S&P trading at a high PE or not? Um, I cannot remember the last time there was a big IPO. I mean, I, we could go out and find the last big yeah. IPO. It happened. But uh, there is very little excitement around the idea of going out and issuing stock and very little uh, excitement around the idea of new companies and, you know, new ways of doing business. Uh, we're going to get a, a Snapchat uh, IPO this year, more likely than not. Uber is probably going to come down the pipeline at some point. But really, there isn't a lot of the sort of old excitement there used to be in that space. Uh, do you think that's a signal that the U.S. equity markets are not what they used to be, or is that just something that you know, and nothing to nothing to worry about? So, the U.S. equity markets trading rich or trading cheap? It's cheap. I, I personally, Snap is a great example. I think we are going to see more capital markets activity this year. Um, I think that banks are. Um, desperate to do deals. There's you know, a lot of, there's a, I think there's a lot of upside there. Uh, and I think we'll see more of that. I don't know that we'll ever return, or I don't know that we will this year return to um, any kind of euphoria around um, IPOs in particular, but there's still definitely a need for that sort of capital markets activity. I will say this one of the reasons that our business exists, in my view, is because of um, capital markets. And that's sort of, that's, that's kind of an ironic statement. But what I mean by that is working at a big bank as a financial advisor, you are subject to decision-making that is based on the vagaries of quarterly earnings. And I, I appreciate the difficulty that companies have negotiating quarterly earnings reports and making quarterly numbers. It's not an easy job, and those that do it and do it well um, more, more than earn their money, in my view. The, the downstream effect, however, on the business of asset management and the business of working with real people and real clients is that oftentimes decisions get made that are not in the best interests of those folks. And I don't mean that in the fiduciary standard sort of way. I just mean it in the general conceptual way of reinvestment in platforms, reinvestment in tools, reinvestment in education of advisors, uh, a whole host of issues that cannot be justified in an ROI calculation uh, that drives a quarterly number, at least not in the short term. So the reason our business exists, in my view, in, in large part, is because that old um, way of doing business, um, when Goldman was a partnership or Charlie Merrill was still at Merrill Lynch and, and advisors were an important part of uh, the makeup of the organization. Um, a lot of that's gone. And, and I think advisors feel that and they know that the availability of tools and the flexibility of non-legacy technology, uh, mobile, et cetera, it's all out here. It's all waiting for them and, and they want it and their clients want it. And big companies have have trouble investing in, in those types of things on behalf of advisors because it's just unclear what the return is going to be to the company. And they've got bigger fish to fry in quotes with quarterly numbers. So I think there's a I think there's a real issue there. And it's um, a, in large part why we exist. Cool. Well, that's going to be it for our conversation with Rob Bartenstein. He's the CEO of uh, Kestra Financial. Rob, thank you so much for joining us. It was a great conversation, uh, covered a really awesome range of topics, and it was awesome having you on. And uh, we'll look forward to having you at some, back at some point in the future. 
That was a lot of fun, George. I hope uh, I hope we said one or two things that were interesting. Had a good time. <laughs> Great. Thanks again. Just a quick note. We recorded our conversation with Rob Bartenstein last week. Since then, the Trump administration has released a new executive order dealing with the Department of Labor's fiduciary rule. We reached out to Rob to clarify where he stood on the fiduciary rule and its implementation in the context of that new executive order. The following is what he had to say. As it relates to the issue of the DOL, this week we will see two important events unfold. First, we'll see what the timeline for any delay looks like, which I expect will be six months, but will still require the issuance of an interim ruling which could lead to litigation. Second, on Thursday we will likely see the ruling on the lawsuit currently pending in Texas. The judge's ruling there will be important in shaping the way people view the legal landscape around the DOL. It's still too early to say whether the rule will ultimately survive in whole or in part, and I would note that there are a lot of forces combined to make sure that it is kept in place in its entirety. Like with the market impacts of Trump's other policy efforts, I suspect we will continue to see a fair amount of volatility on this topic for some time. Thanks for joining us this week on the Bespoke Cast. Once again, I'm Bespoke Investment Group's macro strategist, George Perks. If you enjoy Bespoke Cast, please consider reviewing the podcast in the iTunes Store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. If you'd like to learn more about our firm, please visit bespokepremium.com and follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. Subscribers to our research receive access to the Bespoke Cast one week before public release, in addition to the wide range of reports, datasets, analysis, and commentary that we send out daily. Special thanks to the Free Music Archive for the music in this episode. The track is called Marathon Man by Jason Shaw and is made available under the Creative Commons license. Please visit freemusicarchive.org for more information. Copyright 2016, Bespoke Investment Group, LLC. The information herein was obtained from sources which Bespoke Investment Group, LLC believes to be reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy. Neither the information nor any opinions expressed constitute a solicitation of the purchase or sale of any securities or related instruments. Bespoke Investment Group, LLC is not responsible for any losses incurred from any use of this information.